sweet fiction and sweet truth alike. The background and influence of The Pilgrim's Progress. So Francis Bacon once said that some books are to be tasted, others are to be swallowed, and some few to be chewed and digested. And today I want to introduce you to a book that I think is worthy of being both chewed and digested. That is the book The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. So this is a book that I have read a number of times. Um, Even when I was a child, this book was read to me, and I think there's so much value in it. But today what I want to do is really to give you just a little bit of a background to the book, and then talk a little bit about the influence of this book um, on Christians throughout history. So let's just delve right into the background of The Pilgrim's Progress. The author of The Pilgrim's Progress was John Bunyan, and he lived from 1628 to 1688. That was 59 years in the middle of what was really one of the most tumultuous centuries that this world has ever seen. Now, Bunyan, he came from a poor family. He was the son of a tinker, and he didn't really know a lot about religion. But his life actually went through... um, It was sort of impacted by a number of the great historical events of that time. So Bunyan lived in England, and the history of England in the 1600s, really there were three major time periods. The first time, prior to 1642, uh, much of that time before 1642, King Charles I was the King of England. And throughout Charles I's reign, he was in a constant political battle with Parliament, and Parliament especially was dominated by many Puritan thinkers. So Charles was always trying to get more power, and Parliament was always trying to keep Charles from getting that power. So Charles was oftentimes going up against the Puritans, and they were butting heads a lot in politics. Around 1642, there's this dramatic civil war, and um, Bunyan is caught up in the middle of this. He's um, finding himself in the middle between these parliamentarians and the royalists, who the royalists are the ones who are taking Charles I's... um, his side of the conflict. Well, eventually throughout this conflict of the Civil War, the parliamentarians triumph, and Charles I is actually beheaded. He's taken to trial and um, found guilty of crimes against the state and beheaded by the parliamentarians. And then a very famous figure that many of us have heard about, Oliver Cromwell, fills the political void. So this was an exciting period, but it was also a very formational time for John Bunyan. So Bunyan himself was actually involved in the conflict. He fought for a time with the parliamentarians. We don't really know a lot about what Bunyan's role was. Besides being a soldier, we don't really know what he did in the war, except for one incident that we have heard about that Bunyan records. He says that there was one time when he was sent to lay siege to a town. He was part of this army that was going to lay siege to this town, but another man filled his place, and so Bunyan didn't have to go to fight this battle. And Bunyan heard afterwards that the man who had filled his place as his proxy in the fighting was killed in that fighting. And so Bunyan, in later years, would look back to that time as a time when he saw God providentially sparing his life. But anyways, like I said, the parliamentarians win, Charles is beheaded, and Oliver Cromwell comes to the scene. So after the war, Bunyan just picks up his trade as a tinker, and he also marries a a very poor English girl, but she's also a pious English girl. Apparently, between Bunyan and his wife, they were so very poor that they owned basically nothing at all, except that his wife brought two books to their marriage. She brought The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven by Arthur Dent and The Practice of Piety by Louis Bailey. 
And Bunyan, he, he found these books a little interesting. He would read them, but they didn't really seem to have that much of an effect on his life. They didn't change him in any remarkable way. In fact, Bunyan was actually a very notorious sinner in Bedford, the town that he lives in. And one of the sins, among others, but one of the sins that he was especially notorious for was his filthy language. And he was especially guilty of cursing all of the time. So he's he's swearing like a sailor. And one day after he had just cursed up a storm, he was confronted by this woman in the village. Now, this woman in the village was not any picture of piety herself. She was actually quite a, uh, just a profligate person herself. But she even saw that Bunyan was so profane that she confronted him. And she said that Bunyan should be ashamed of himself for the words that he was using and for setting such a bad example for everyone else in the village. Well, Bunyan evidently was ashamed, and he determined that he was going to change, that he was not going to be that person anymore. And here's the remarkable thing. Bunyan actually did change. By sheer willpower, he began to remove that practice of cursing from his life. And it was a very remarkable change. Everyone noticed that here's Bunyan who used to swear all the time, and yet now he's he's very clean in his language. Well, Bunyan, and he seemed to have um, felt that that was such a valuable thing that he decided, why not I try to clean up the rest of my life? And so he decided to do that. He would take different aspects of his life and try to clean them up. And to the astonishment of his town, he gradually became known as a moral man. And not only that, but he loved to talk about morality. And whenever you would start to talk about morality, Bunyan wanted to be there because he believed that he had figured out morality as it were. He had, by his own efforts, pulled himself up by his bootstraps to become, as he saw himself, a moral person, and as everyone else saw him, to be a moral person. Well, it so happened that one day, as he was walking through the town, he he chances upon these three ladies who are sitting on a doorstep. And these three ladies are talking about the things of God. Now, as soon as Bunyan hears them talking about the things of God, he's very excited to join the conversation because, of course, here's Bunyan, this very moral person, and he wants to, to be in those conversations and to teach everyone else how to be moral like he is. So he joins the conversation with th- these three ladies But as he begins to listen to what they're saying, suddenly he realizes that they have something that he does not have. And there's something about the sweetness and the beauty of their religion. And as they talk about Jesus Christ, something of the sweetness and beauty of what they have to say about Jesus Christ that he realizes he has never experienced. So, He comes into this conversation thinking that he has the answers, but by the time it's finished, he realizes that he has much to learn. And these ladies introduce him to their nonconformist church. Now, the nonconformist church at that time, um, England has a state church, the Anglican establishment, the Anglican church. And so a nonconformist church is any church that is not part of the Anglican church. Now, the Anglican church had some good stuff and it had some bad stuff, and it really depended. There was a lot of variety there. But the Anglican Church was um, certainly, it was under the control of the king or the queen, and these are nonconformists, so they're not following just whatever the king or the queen says to believe. Well, anyways, um, John Bunyan is introduced to this church. He becomes an evangelical Christian, and he begins 
to preach the gospel to people. And he realizes that morality itself was not sufficient to make him right with God. His own supposed immor- his own supposed morality is not actually making him to be righteous. But about this time, politics began to intervene in his life. Again, I said that the first period of English history in the 1600s, you have the time of King Charles I. Then you have that time of the Civil War in Oliver Cromwell. But then, about 1660, um, Oliver Cromwell is dead in England desires a king again. They've sort of gotten tired of this ruling themselves without a king, and so what do they do? But they send for Charles II, who takes the throne. He's the son of Charles I. And Charles II didn't really have a lot of patience, as you can imagine, with those who killed his father. He doesn't have a lot of patience with the Puritans, who had resisted his father. So under the leadership of Charles II, Parliament, which has now just basically they're going to do whatever Charles II wants them to do, Under the leadership of Charles II, Parliament passes four religious bills. And I want to mention these four bills because they will give you some sense of the difficulties that Christians faced in this time um, after 1660 in England. First is the Corporation Act of 1661. And this one said that you could not be elected to the government office of any city or corporation unless you had been to the Lord's Supper in the Anglican Church in the last 12 months. So if you've not been there to um, the Lord's Supper in those last 12 months, in an approved church, you can't hold these offices. Second act of uniformity in 1662 required the use of the Book of Common Prayer in order to hold any office within government or church. So now you have to use the standard Book of Common Prayer, which many Puritans objected to. Then there is the Conventicle Act of 1664, that said that no more than five people can meet for a religious assembly outside of the Church of England. So you think about a Bible study or a family that comes together. If there's more than five people in the family, if they're just gathering together to worship the Lord, well, that is a religious assembly, and you can't do that. Then the Five Mile Act of 1665 says that any clergyman who has been um, expelled cannot even live within five miles of the parish that he was expelled from. So, for example, you have these Puritans who don't want to use the Book of Common Prayer. Now they're expelled from their churches, and then they have to move away from their church that they were expelled from. So it's very harsh legislation that's going on. But Bunyan, as I said, is a gospel preacher by this time. His first wife had died, and he'd married again, this time to an 18-year-old girl named Elizabeth. Now in 1660, she was pregnant, and Bunyan was in trouble with the law due to his preaching, and technically... They would actually use a violation. They would say that he violated an older law from 1592. So in 1661, Bunyan was imprisoned. And he was promised freedom if he would promise not to preach. That's all you have to do. If you say that you won't preach, you can walk out of jail. But Bunyan refused. And here's the remarkable thing. Bunyan refused for the next 12 years. 12 years that Bunyan was in jail that he could have walked out at any time if he had simply said, I will not preach. And he says that it was a great difficulty and it was a great strain on his family. He, the primary breadwinner of his family, imprisoned and unable to provide for them. A very painful, hard time in their lives. But for 12 years, Bunyan is in jail. It's not until 1672 when King Charles issued a declaration of indulgence 
that Bunyan was freed from the Bedford Jail. And let me also mention that wasn't because he said that he wouldn't preach. That was simply the king decides to make this indulgence to sort of try to gain back some favor from the Puritans that he's been oppressing for so long. But this time of 12 years of imprisonment was a very long, very trying time in Bunyan's life. But during that time, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And The Pilgrim's Progress is the story of a man named Christian who leaves his home. He lives in a city called the City of Destruction to go on a journey to the Celestial City. And it's presented under the figure of a dream. Bunyan writes this as if he has had this dream of this man named Christian who's going on this journey. Along the way, Christian meets many adventures. Um, At one time, there's so many different adventures, but just to mention a couple, um, at one time, he's directed away from the cross. He has this great burden on his shoulders, and he is directed away from the cross by a man who says, go to the town of morality. And you see in this, a picture of Bunyan's own life, because what had he done? He had tried to go to morality to, to be free of his burden of sin rather than go to Christ. And so that's one of the adventures that Christian faces along this journey, is tempted away from the cross of Christ. Um, in another town, he's passing through Vanity Fair, and Christian has a friend named Faithful. And I'm not going to tell you what happens, but um, in Vanity Fair, they face all of the rage and persecution of the world, all the temptations, all the hatred of the world. And again, you can imagine Bunyan himself seeing himself living in Vanity Fair at that time. Um, Another time, they're imprisoned in a terrible place called the Doubting Castle, and Christian forgets that he has been given a key called Promise that could free him from this terrible place. So many different lessons that Bunyan brings together in this allegory, and things that many Christians have benefited from ever since. These are just a few, though, of the adventures that Christian experiences along the way. And um, he just, he encounters temptations, and he encounters difficulties, and he encounters even doctrines in the figure of people that he meets along this journey. Now, the style of the book is very simple. It's written in the common man's language. And Even for us today, though, I would say that's a little older than we speak today, but it's not too difficult to understand. So um, I would really encourage you, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, just pick it up. It's not, I know that it is a little difficult in terms of it's not how we speak today, but I don't think it's too difficult. But if that is too hard for you to understand the older English that it's written in, there are certainly revisions in modern English that you can use as well. Now, I mentioned that Bunyan was freed from jail in 1672, and he found that The Pilgrim's Progress was a very successful book, especially among the common folk of England and America. So eventually, he decided to pick up his pen again and to write part two of The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, part two of Pilgrim's Progress is also a journey, and this one is by Christian's wife, Christiana, who also leaves the city of destruction as well, and she also goes on this pilgrimage to the celestial city. She encounters many of the same situations that her husband faced, but her story is unique and it's a little different. Um, She's accompanied by her sons along the way. And Alexander Witherspoon writes of this second part of the Pilgrim's Progress. He says, it clarifies and reinforces and justifies the story of part one. The beam of Bunyan's spotlight is broadened to include Christian's family and other men, women, and children. The incidents and accidents of everyday life are more numerous. 
the joys of the pilgrimage tend to outweigh the hardships, and to the faith and hope of part one is added in abundant measure that greatest of virtues, charity. So Bunyan has written now this two-part book called The Pilgrim's Progress, and he's out of prison, so he throws himself into the work of the ministry. He became one of the most famous nonconformist ministers, especially because of his book, which so many people found so valuable. But even though he was given the opportunity to go into more, as it were, prestigious churches, he, he was always committed to the small village church there at Bedford. And in fact, in 1676, still under the reign of Charles II, Bunyan was imprisoned a second time for his preaching. So again, it looked like he would be called to be in prison for potentially a very long time because he was continuing to preach the gospel. But thankfully, he was only in jail for about six months at this time, and then he was again free to continue preaching. In 1688, John Bunyan took a trip to London, and while he was there in London, he was caught in a storm and he developed a fever. He died there on August 31st of 1688. Um, Right around this time, there would be great changes in England. Charles II and his descendants, James, um, would be removed, and a new um, sovereign, William and Mary from the Netherlands, would take control of the country and bring with it religious freedom for those nonconformists. But John Bunyan was not going to experience that religious freedom. Now, I mentioned that the Pilgrim's Progress, let me, let me talk a little bit about the Pilgrim's Progress from a historical perspective because there's so much influence that this book had. And I mentioned that it was written in a very simple, plain English style. This is part of what made it so popular among the English people. Bunyan becomes famous because of his book and tens of thousands of people begin to read it. And it's really hard to say what the influence of the Pilgrim's Progress is because so many people read it, but most of them we don't know exactly. They didn't record for us how it affected their lives. But it is said that every English household that owned a copy of the Bible also owned a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress. And that wasn't just limited to England. The book uh, it quickly found its way onto ships that went to the New World, and it was actually received in America with even more excitement than it was in England. See, in England, it was considered a common man's book. It was written in a common man's language, and so The copies of the book were oftentimes made on cheap paper, poorly bound together because it was just for common consumption. People, the the upper classes didn't really value it that much. They saw it as just a common man's thing. In America, which was a very deeply religious country with a great deal of Puritan influence at this time, people recognized this as a very valuable spiritual work. And so the book was printed on quality paper in expensive binding. And Bunyan himself marveled. He wrote... um, in poetic language, he says, "'Tis in New England, under such advance, receives there so much loving countenance, so comely doth my pilgrim walk, that of him thousands daily sing and talk." Indeed, outside of Bibles, almanacs, and reference materials, The Pilgrim's Progress was one of only seven books in America that would sell over a thousand copies by 1690, so very popular in the New World. And this rage to to read the Pilgrim's Progress, it continued well past Bunyan's lifetime. It was so popular in America that someone has even said that familiarity with the Pilgrim's Progress was once considered the mark of being a good American. It shows up in American popular culture all the time. Louisa May Alcott's famous novel Little Women, for example, mentions the sisters often reading that book. 
Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe considered it to be her favorite book apart from the Bible. She taught the book to her children, and she even thought of her own life in terms of a pilgrimage, and she would describe her life in terms of the Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, um, just recently I was listening to an audiobook about World War II and listening and even some notes about Pilgrim's Progress showing up in that as different generals in the Second World War mentioning this general reads Pilgrim's Progress all the time, or he brought Pilgrim's Progress with him into the campaigns in World War II. So it's a book that has had a great influence on America. But let me turn to a couple other people who individually profited so much from this book. One of these people that we know of is John Newton. John Newton, you may remember him, the author of Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader and a slave ship captain, but he came to know Jesus Christ. He left his slaving, and he preached Jesus Christ. So at Tuesday night prayer meetings, um, John Newton would have these prayer meetings in Olney, and he would teach not only from the Bible, but he would also use the Pilgrim's Progress as a book to instruct believers in the Christian faith. He actually wrote a preface to the book, Pilgrim's Progress, and he footnoted the Pilgrim's Progress with hymns that he had written and that his friend William Cooper had written. So one of these hymns is titled The Pilgrim's Song. It's included in his in one of the footnotes on the Pilgrim's Progress that Newton writes. And it says, The promised land of peace, faith keeps in constant view. How different from the wilderness we now are passing through. And then I mentioned William Cooper as one of these people who knows John Newton. Cooper was also greatly influenced by the Pilgrim's Progress. So you might remember Cooper. Cooper is the man who wrote There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, and he wrote a number of very um, famous English hymns. He was a very famous English, English poet and an evangelical. But one of the first books that Cooper actually learned to read at the age of only four or five was The Pilgrim's Progress. In poetic form, he described John Bunyan as ingenious dreamer, in whose well-told tale sweet fiction and sweet truth alike prevail, whose humorous vein, strong sense, and simple style may teach the gayest, make the gravest smile. And then for those literary critics who said that the Pilgrim's Progress was too simple, too common, Cooper advised them to revere the man whose pilgrim marks the road, and guides the progress of the soul to God. Now, another famous person who benefited greatly from the Pilgrim's Progress was Charles Spurgeon. At the age of 19, Charles Spurgeon decided to give a copy of this book to a young lady who was facing some spiritual difficulties. Her name was Miss Thompson, and he wrote inside it, Miss Thompson, with desires for her progress in the blessed pilgrimage. From C.H. Spurgeon, April 20, 1854. And in fact, Charles would later marry Miss Thompson, and the book became a beloved treasure for both of them. Charles actually said that he read the book over a hundred times in his life. He said about the book, It is a volume of which I never seem to tire, and the secret of its freshness is that it is so largely compiled from the scriptures. It is really biblical teaching put into the form of a simple yet very striking allegory. Now, Susanna Spurgeon, that Miss Thompson, she said about the gift later on, um, thinking back to that time when her future husband had given her a copy, she said, I do not think my beloved had at that time any other thought 
concerning me than to help a struggling soul heavenward. But I was greatly impressed by his concern for me, and the book became very precious as well as helpful. But why should you read Bunyan? Well, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. He said, read anything of his, Bunyan's, and you will see that it is almost like reading the Bible itself. He had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say, why, this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. So far then, I've been talking a little bit about the influence of the Pilgrim's Progress both in America and in England. But what about in other places? Has this book had an influence in other places? Certainly it has. The book was one of the favorites of missionaries. So in the past, when missionaries would go to the field, one of the first things that they would often do is they would set up printing presses, and then they would begin to translate the Bible into the language of the people. Well, it turns out that oftentimes, the only as soon as the Bible was published, they would turn to the Pilgrim's Progress. Sometimes, even before they had finished translating the whole Bible, they would translate maybe a few books of the Bible, and then they would translate the Pilgrim's Progress. So this was a very common all throughout the world, these missionaries translating the Pilgrim's Progress, and it was done everywhere. In 1847, London Missionary Society ship headed to Tahiti with 5,000 Tahitian Bibles and 4,000 Tahitian copies of the Pilgrim's Progress, just as an example. And then one of the most remarkable stories of this book was its use in Madagascar. So Christian missionaries had lived on the island until about 1835, and in 1835 there were about 1,500 native Madagascar Christians. But then began 26 years of horror. A queen, the Queen of Madagascar, said that Christianity was illegal, and hundreds were punished. Many of them died, some of them the victims of torture. For 26 years, the missionaries were unable to spread the gospel in Madagascar. The only resources that the Christian community at this time had were the books that had been translated and printed by the missionaries. And those books were primarily the Bible and what? You guessed it, the Pilgrim's Progress. In fact, it is said that the church in Madagascar grew from 1500 in 1835 to 7,000 26 years later. So there you have the government repressing Christians, and yet still the Christians themselves sharing the gospel with others and using the resources that they have, the Bible and the Pilgrim's Progress being those main resources, and still coming out victorious at the end of that time. Finally, let me mention to you the story of Henry Martin. Martin was a Christian missionary to India and Persia in the very early 1800s, and he considered the mission field, um, while he was considering the mission field, one of the great questions that Martin had to face was whether to pursue marriage with his sweetheart Lydia. And so this was a question that Martin had wrestled very deeply with. He wasn't sure what God's intention was for him, whether to marry or not. But one evening, after he was wrestling deeply with this question and talking about it with his friends, he records in his journal, continued all the evening writing sermon and reading Pilgrim's Progress, 
with successions of vivid emotions of pain and pleasure. My heart was sometimes ready to break with agony at being torn from its dearest idol, and at other times I was visited by a few moments of sublime and enraptured joy. Such is the conflict. Why have my friends mentioned this subject? It has torn open old wounds, and I am again bleeding. June 8th, 1804. Well, at that time, Henry didn't actually um, take any action. He later died before he had the opportunity to marry Lydia, but he did go to the mission field, and while he was on his way to India aboard a British troop ship in 1805, he frequently recorded in his journal that he was reading the Pilgrim's Progress along with his Bible. He would also read this book to the soldiers on board the ship. So he reports of one evening on board, I retired soon after dinner and read the Pilgrim's Progress to the men who attended in great numbers to hear, chiefly because the rain prevented their being on deck. I never perceived so much of the extraordinary value of this book till now. I am now got beyond most of my poor hearers, but it cannot be helped. The later part of a Christian's course may be more blessed to them than the beginning. But as I go on, the book furnishes me with opportunities of making a thousand useful remarks I should never have thought of else. Later, while he was stationed in India as a chaplain of the British East India Company, he would often read the book to the English and to the Indians who were in a local hospital. So one time he writes in his journal, Great attention. I think the word is not going forth in vain. In the afternoon, read at the hospital. The man told me that the men at the hospital were very attentive and thankful that I came amongst them, passed the evening with great joy and peace in singing hymns. Another time he writes, found 50 sick at the hospital who heard the Pilgrim's Progress with great delight. So there's so many other stories of how this book has affected different people, but I think that gives you a taste of the importance of this book on Christians' lives throughout history. Let me just mention to you a couple thoughts that come to my mind as I think about the value of the Pilgrim's Progress. And let me mention, too, that this is a book that has had an influence on me, a great influence. I think about, even as a child, reading or listening to that section of the Pilgrim's Progress at the end, where Christian passes into the celestial city. And Bunyan says he, he describes this wonderful, beautiful scene of Christian going into the celestial city. And then he says at the very end, as the book is almost done, he says as he looks through the gates, not himself in the city, but looking in to see where Christian has gone. He speaks of how the sight would make anyone want to go in there. And every time I read that description, it just sends chills down my spine to think of what a wonderful description of the celestial city that is. But let me mention to you just a couple ways that I think that this book can help us as Christians walk in the Spirit together. And the first is we need to reclaim the idea of the Christian life as a pilgrimage. This is a very biblical idea. We see it in Psalm 119 verse 54. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. And Psalm 39, 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. Now, we don't all face the same challenges that Christian did in the Pilgrim's Progress. We don't all face them in the same order. But we are all pilgrims. And this is the 50,000-foot view of the Christian life, but it's easily forgotten. We're so busy in the day-to-day -day that we miss this idea that we are pilgrims. A second thought that comes to mind is we need to reclaim the practice 
of devotional reading. As I showed in these previous Christians from the past, they were reading their Bibles, but they were also reading books like The Pilgrim's Progress, and they were doing so devotionally, not just to learn what it says inside, but to think about it and to think how it applies to their life. Now, obviously, this has to start with the Holy Bible. Don't go read Pilgrim's Progress if you're not reading the Scripture. But there are also other books, like this book, that Christians have turned to over the last several centuries. And I think there's two reasons why we don't do this so well today. The first problem is that we're too busy. We just have so much stuff going on. We have to clear out space to have margin to be able to read books like this and to do it at an unrushed, unhurried pace. The second problem is that we've lost the art of devotional reading. We don't even know how to do it. So I would say, find the time and then just read it. Read it at a leisurely pace. Think about it. Think about how it applies to your life. Maybe even journal about the ideas that you read about in the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, a third lesson that I think we can take away is we need to reclaim the idea that every event, every occurrence in life is meant to be interpreted within the sovereignty of God for our edification. And this is really the message that we find in the book of Hebrews when the author begins to talk to us about the chastening of God. Hebrews tells us that God chastens us to promote the peaceable fruit of righteousness. This is what the Bible says. And this is the fundamental background of the pilgrim's progress, that everything that Christian faces on his pilgrimage, it's spiritual in nature. God has brought it into his life for a reason, to prepare him for that celestial city. We need to think about life in the same way. So for these reasons, I would commend to you the practice of reading the Pilgrim's Progress. I want to conclude my talk by giving to you the words of John Newton. I said that John Newton, the slave trader, the author of Amazing Grace, and then one who benefited greatly from the Pilgrim's Progress, I said that he wrote a preface to the book. And in his preface, he says this, If you are indeed asking the way to Zion, with your face thitherward, I bid you good speed. Behold, an open door is set before you which none can shut. Yet prepare to endure hardship, for the way lies through many tribulations. There are hills and valleys to be passed, lions and dragons to be met with, but the Lord of the hill will guide and guard his people. Put on the whole armor of God. Fight the good fight of faith. Beware of the flatterer. Beware of the enchanted ground. See the land of Beulah. Yea, the city of Jerusalem itself is before you. There Jesus the forerunner waits to welcome travelers home.